I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. Little uh, advertising before we start shit off. Uh, I have a new record out on Enemy Records from a Russian producer named Nastya Regal. Um, her debut EP is called Trust Intimacy. It's out on vinyl and in digital formats. I'm pretty sure it's on Spotify and those streaming services too. I'm not actually sure, to be honest. Anyway... If you're interested, check it out. It's a hell of a record, and the artwork's super cool. And uh, any money that you kick down towards that stuff ends up back in my pocket anyway, which helps to keep this show going. All right, anyway, the podcast is back from a break, and my guess is you're wondering what the hell happened. Uh, In short, the show became a pain in the ass, so I put it on hold for a bit. Uh... Recording the show is a lot of fun because you just get to hang out with friends and other guests for a few hours and talk about whatever, but organizing the show is a little different. Uh, for one thing, it's it's really hard to schedule guests, uh, especially when they're from out of town, and for the most part, guests tend to cancel a lot. Sometimes it's due to travel and totally understandable circumstances, and sometimes they're just freaking lazy. Um, this summer I also had an extremely heavy studio schedule due to a lot of promises I made, so I decided to give that the priority. Uh, after a little bit of a break, I started recording, uh, episodes with guests again, but because my summer was so busy, I needed more time to get the interviews out. So, today's episode and the next couple, uh, were all recorded, hmm, about a couple months ago, and they will roll out weekly, but I expect that to change when the show moves back to a bi-weekly schedule shortly after. Alright, well, now that we got that out of the way, a lot has happened since March. Like I mentioned earlier, I have a ton of music coming out in the next 6-8 to eight months, which I'll reveal shortly over time. Uh, so that's been my primary focus. Gigs-wise, I had a really solid outing of uh, club gigs and festivals in Europe this summer, and I just came back from a small tour in the States. I hit SF, San Francisco, for the first time in, I don't remember, I want to say five, maybe six years. And then the night after that, myself and Truncate teamed up for a six-hour back-to-back house set at the Panther Room during the uh, Droid Behavior Showcase at Output. And that one was interesting because even though we hang out quite a bit, I don't think, to my knowledge, we've actually ever played uh, together, even in a techno set. But it went over really well, and a big thanks to everybody who came out. The place was fucking rammed, and uh, I wish I could say I remembered more of it. Anyway, I finished off the weekend in Minneapolis with the house set for communion, which is always good. And then I took off for even further, which was also a blast. Um, But now I'm back in Europe and I'm trying to get these damn episodes out. My guest this week is Kevin McHugh, a.k.a. Ambivalent, a.k.a. LA4A. He was on the show about a year and a half ago, and he's back. And uh, he's always a solid voice of reason. This one gets a bit philosophical or theoretical because we dive into the topic of being an artist or what it means in 2017. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Also, uh, ghost producing and stuff like that. 
Um, but before we start the interview, it's worth mentioning that Kevin put out a record on my label about six months ago, maybe. It's called Drag, and it features a remix from myself and also from Amatic. It's a great package. All the tracks sound really good. The artwork looks cool. Um, just like I mentioned with Nasha's record earlier, it's available on vinyl and digital. I think it's on the streaming platforms. Uh, go ahead and check it out. And like I said, any of the money you kick down for that stuff will end up over here at some point. So enjoy the show. All right. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Hey, how's it going? It's going. It's been about, I don't know, a year or something like that, right? Easily. Pardon the ambulance. It's we're in Berlin. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's been a while. We got a lot to talk about because um, you, you've been busy on the release front and whatnot. But uh, I think so. Just so before, have you. Yeah, we both have. So we'll get into that. But um, I was just commenting when we were checking the headphone volumes and everything that I made a joke that I can tell which of my friends are the most deaf when you know I got to crank up their volume for their <laughs> headphones. And you said that you you had something you wanted to discuss oh, about. That. I just I feel like that's something that none of us really in this none none of us who do this talk about it enough. Like our protecting ourselves and and maintaining our awareness of of the health of our ears because mm-hmm. that's the primary. I mean, it's the primary instrument, right? And Definitely. I, I I had this weird thing where I, um, I you know I got an, a hearing test a couple of years ago. I've had them, I've had two or three in the last, I don't know, five or six years. And I was sure each time that I was going to have some dreadful result. Like mm-hmm. it was going to come back and be like, you know, you'll be deaf in two years or, you know, Something say like goodbye. That. And the results came back crystal clear. Like they said, you have zero hearing loss. And I didn't trust it, but I was, re- obviously I was relieved. I, you know, at least I could, you know tell my parents or tell my wife like, Oh, I'm all good. But then something happened to me last year. Uh, it was April of last year. I was playing a festival in Holland and I was one hour into my set and my right ear went totally quiet. And then all the hearing in that ear was just replaced by a high pitched sine wave, like a boo. And it just it, it it came on like that like it just came on instantly there was no, it wasn't like there was a big burst in sound or some any, anything that caused it it was just it just all of a sudden did that and i was on stage in front of easily more than you know 1500 people and i mean i i i held it together but i i really felt like i, I at that oh, moment i was shit. convinced <laughs> that i had lost my livelihood you know yeah. and and then it was then the next question was like okay how do i get through the next hour right yeah. like how do i survive this and either a not make it worse or b i mean and there was no one around like you know those there are those moments when you're djing and there's no one within for lack of a better term, earshot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's no one you can reach, you know, and, and you just have to soldier through it or pull the music out. And what, like, you know, obviously the, the option of turning the music off and walking off stage in front of that many people was not really um, an appealing one and calling someone for help wouldn't have really changed anything 
I didn't know who the next DJ was and what the next moment and the next step would be. So it was a matter of using my, the, the one good ear I had to mix in headphones, turn the monitors completely off, mix in headphones with one ear for the rest of the set and get out of it, you know, like just wow. get through it in an hour. And the funny thing is, is that I had my earplugs. I, I DJ most often with earplugs. Now, since then, I, I refuse to go into a club without earplugs, but I, I had the earplugs in and I was like, ah, I'll be fine without them. And I took them off. And then of course that happened. Right. Wow. And it was, it was really eye opening. You know, it was, it was terrifying. And I, in the drive back to, it was about two year, two hours later that I was driving back to the hotel and the hearing came back in that ear and I was okay. Um, sorry, I'll turn off my ringer on that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, but, but for, for whatever, for, for those several hours, I was convinced that my, my life as a musician was over, Man. that I was never going to hear in that ear again. And you hear about stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it happens Somebody to just told me a real similar story like a week and a half, two weeks ago where the hearing just went out like that. Um, I know, well, the reason that it came up is because uh, I was working on my new hit record here at the house about mm-hmm. three weeks ago. And uh, I just, I had these headphones on. I'm sitting there at the desk messing around. It's like 2.30 in the morning. And I, you obviously can't be loud, but since I've been into the track for a while, I'm cranking it up as loud as it can go. Of course. And I knew this this one hi-hat just had this frequency because it's, it's more like a noise, a white noise thing than a hi-hat. And the next day, I woke up uh, because my ears were ringing. Like, that got me out of bed. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I was like, I really must have pushed it last night. And I was freaking out. And it wouldn't stop ringing. I went to the computer, and I listened immediately to the track. And, of course, like, the hi-hat was louder than anything in the track by a good probably five or six decibels. And it was just piercing, like, in that that high-frequency range. And my ears were rough for, like, a good two days Mm -hmm. because of that, you know? And and what's really scary about ears, we don't really know – what comes back or, you know, mm-hmm. if you, if you do something like that, it's kind of like a sunburn, right? Like you recover from it a couple of days later, you're okay. And you forget about it. But the real price that comes from it is maybe 40 years later, you know, yeah, we, totally. we don't know. And one of the things that I mentioned to you was that, um, Nina Kravitz posted something on, uh, on her Twitter recently talking about, new research in hearing loss and she was being, you know, really honest about this being something that she's encountered that, that they're finding that when they, they can do hearing tests and you can come across perfectly through a hearing test and show that there's no frequencies that you've lost because that's, that's one of the things, that's the way hearing tests work is they tell you like this frequency range, you know, you have this many dB of hearing loss, but apparently they're now finding that there are, there are conditions that people are coming back with where you can come across fine in a, in the current hearing test format, but really, really struggle to understand speech when there is other music or sound in the background. And when I saw that, 
it, it totally, it like it rang a bell clear as day. I, it, I literally was like, oh, my wife tells me I have this problem all the time. Like I even do this weird thing. I don't even, I'm not even aware that I'm doing it, but if I'm in a crowded restaurant with friends or if there's a lot of music playing, I do this really old man thing where I cup my hand behind my ear and it works and it's great. And I'm like, Oh, this is a perfect solution. And am I like, people tease me about this. Like, what are you doing? Like that looks really, it looks really, you look like an old man and you look strange. And it's, it's obviously a sign that something's not right. If I'm the one doing that. And if that's the only way I can hear people talk, Mm -hmm. but I have this problem where like I can be out with friends and if it's a loud restaurant or if it's if there's music that's on that's the worst though that's i, I mean. can't do it i can't hear, i can't understand what people are saying and i i i just thought it was me i thought it was like a mental block but when nina posted this thing on twitter it was like oh wait that's me i have that problem and that that's just further evidence to me that that all of us who and I'm not just talking about DJs. I'm talking about any of us who regularly go out to hear music at loud volumes need to be conscious of protecting ourselves, protecting our hearing, because you don't get it back, you know? Yeah. No, it's it's 100% true. And uh, I still haven't gotten the filters myself, the, the earbuds. Do but, it. You won't regret yeah. it, really. Well, it's one of those because it pops up like... Uh, on my Facebook feed every other month, someone's like, oh, where do I get it done? And then I bookmark that thing and then I never look again. But So I, I just got to do it. Anyway, let's talk more about you rather than your loss of hearing. <laughs> since since we... Uh, do you want to talk about my bad back or my bad knees or uh, we'll get there. <laughs> losing my eyesight? Or we'll what, what other aging-related illnesses should I talk about? How, old sh- how much should I date myself here? Is anybody still listening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, since you were on the show... You've put out an album under LA4A. I did, yeah. And a, a single or two singles at least <sighs> that, uh, for LA4A? Trying to define... It's, I have it's it hard. on Discog, so... Oh, all right. Well, I mean, I can say in 2016, I can probably recount that I did the, the, the LA4A album. I did an EP on Unknown to the Unknown as LA4A. Yep. I did a bunch of remixes as LA4A for like Hot Flush and Born Electric and... Uh, I can't remember the others. Um, sorry if anybody's insulted by not me not, not being. It's able to it's really hard to come up with stuff off the top of your head. Uh, and then I did a bunch of ambivalent stuff too. I mean, last yeah. year I the, the 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 thing that I realized at the end of 2016 was I put out more under either alias than I ever had as any one alias combined. Like, wow, I did you know. I think three EPs or four EPs is ambivalent and then an album plus an EP as LA4A and and generally for most people for any one artist that would be you know an album plus an EP would be a, a solid year or three EPs would be a solid year so mm-hmm. to put out both of those under both aliases I was kind of like maybe I need to take a vacation or take a break from that's the thing you can't do that these days no but i there's there's another part where i wonder like how much is too much when do people kind of just glaze over you know well i mean that's a that's a it's a topic really worth discussing because here's the deal days of being able to do one record per year and two around that are are over um of course even the people that were well known for that, like the oh, this is the one record that so and so is going to do per year. Those people, they're putting out multiple things per year now. Sure. Um, 
whether the quality is better or not is kind of it's irrelevant because it's uh it's by opinion you know what i mean but uh the fact is they're putting out more stuff because these days you people just cycle th- through things so much more quickly you know so for example i have at least three records ready to go right now basically for myself like solo records but it's like how quickly do you release them um it's three too many blah, blah. And like in the past i think like doing three records in a year is kind of pushing it now i feel like three is very it's as long as they're they're solid records that's almost a necessity um unless you have you're one of these guys that has already 12 plus bookings a month you don't you don't need to do that but uh <laughs> if you have 12 plus bookings a month i think it's pretty hard to get three eps there's, out. yeah exactly and those people do listen to the show, but there's about 10 of them. So that means the rest <laughs> of us that are, are listening on this show here, it's you got to you gotta hustle a bit more. Like if you work really hard on getting one great record out, that's awesome. Uh-huh. But if you don't have something to keep that momentum up, whether it's some sort of project, I think you're going to be up shit creek. So this... I mean, I, I, I wouldn't argue with anything that you're saying, right? There's, there's definitely a logic to it. But I, I kind of lately have come to believe that the relationship between putting out records and that creating a demand for people seeing you DJ, um, I've kind of started to believe that those two things are just totally decoupled. People either want to see you DJ because they're interested in seeing you DJ or they want to hear the music that you're making as uh, as an artist. But I don't know that... I just... The, the old math that existed three or four years ago in the, in the DJ biz of like put out a record and tour on that for a couple months and put out another one. And, and then if you put out a really steady series of really great stuff, you know, over and over and over, over time, that'll kind of kick something else into gear i think i think that that math is outdated to a degree i mean it depends because on one hand we are definitely coming up in an era where you can get by solely on your credibility as a dj but it's not i mean look at all these people that are out there now you got like mike servito um jack master all these guys of course, they can rock the party, so that's why they're getting booked. But there's also, like, some people have full-on teams behind them. Some have, like, they're a part of a posse that has is kind of having their moment. Um, so there has to be something. That, it's not just solely like, oh, by the way, I saw this guy play at a bar and he's great. Like, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. I, th- I think it's still really hard for most people to get by solely as being a DJ. And most promoters are going to want to book someone that's putting out records. Yeah, I guess I'm struggling to because I feel like it's so hard for records to get noticed. Um that there's this other part to it that I think about where I don't necessarily know that um that the records are the things that things that are having the impact. I don't know, but that, you know, I, I I'm completely at this point mystified as to um how things get decided. I, for a long time I was a promoter and I knew that booking certain people that did, you know, enough stuff or were, were being paid attention to could, could work that, you know, basically paying them could, 
bring in enough money that it could pay itself off. That was always my only concern. Now, I don't know what the math is. I don't know who makes what decision about what gets booked and what doesn't. It's um, maybe, maybe I've just been in the industry too long or I've, I'm too close to it to, um, to really see what works and what doesn't. I don't know. Well, I think there's just different paths to getting there. Whereas True. before it was a little bit more obvious or straightforward. There's a lot of different angles you can work now. Some people have, like, they uh, have just great tracks. Like, you take someone like Truncate, he's always popping off mm-hmm. great hits almost monthly, mm-hmm. and that's enough to help build your profile. Mm-hmm. Some people uh, ha- are are part of a cause or have a cause behind them, and that propels them to whatever they want to do. Then you've got other people who solely work um, kind of like this Instagram world, like social media, and that's what they kind of got their notoriety from. I mean, there's different ways to to get to the end goal. Um, you said part of a cause. I don't. I'm not sure what you mean. Well, like for example, I, I feel like uh, you know some people can do things like uh, you know for uh, what's the the thing I'm thinking of? Like for example. Uh, like disc woman, you know, that's a, a cause. I don't want to say like that's the whole primary concern, but more in the sense that it's like you're a collective that works together and you're also like spreading a message and stuff like that. And you I know see. what I mean? Like I there's see. something not not just solely the records. It's like we're part of this group. Whereas like, you know, for example, before the idea of there used to be like, oh, you had Swedish techno, you had UK techno, whatever, like you would be associated to that group. And whereas I'm saying now, like you might mm. be part of a, collective that pushes uh let's say only acid music or you're pushing a social cause or you know what i'm saying so that's why i say like uh something else that's maybe not exactly related to music or or whatnot so okay um but yeah i mean there there's different ways that things take off now and whether it's it doesn't matter i mean it doesn't matter whether it's the right way or the wrong way like you can do it um, you know, however you want, basically. It's just whether it's going to pick up, you know? Sure. I think, I think that question of like how things get picked up and heard and, and responded to, I think every artist has confusion and a struggle with, you know, what's gonna, um, what's going to ignite with their audience and you can be, really excited about something you're putting out and you put out an EP with four tracks on it and the tracks that you're really excited about and you're convinced people are going to go absolutely nuts for get ignored. And the thing that you threw on as the B2 as the afterthought is what everybody loves. That's been the case though, since the nineties, even always been the case. I, I think it's a universal thing that as artists we have, um, somehow strange calibrations for what we think um, hits the bar because ultimately we, we are not our own audience. I mean, in for people who are producers and DJs, we, we wear both hats, but we still can't hear our own music the, way the same do. way others do or the same way we would hear other people's music. And so that, that conflict, that, that dichotomy is always that thing that makes it impossible for us to really know confidently 
okay, I'm putting this out and this is going to be popular. You can put it out and believe in it and know that it is the right step for you as an artist. It's music that you 100% believe in, but you don't know which parts of it people are going to go for. You don't know how they're going to interpret it. You don't know where it's going to land, who's going to like it, who's going to not like it. So it's always a roll of the dice. Um, and, and that's why I also am starting to, at least in my mind, like I said, decouple releasing from DJing because the, the, the further I can get away from the notion that putting out this record will, um, keep my rent paid and keep Mm -hmm. my career alive and keep people interested in hearing from me. Um, the more I can dissociate those two things, the more that my music becomes free and becomes just a pure expression on its own. And the more, um, I can really assess that people are, are booking me as a DJ because of my DJing. Because I, I, I put a, a huge amount of effort into both. And I don't, I don't like getting the feedback from people sometimes that they, that I'm seen more as a producer than a DJ. Um, because I don't think that one of those two things is more important to me than the other. Um, and, but again, that's another one of those things where nobody knows what public perception, um, is going to be about what you do. You just do the best you can and you, you know, you do what you believe in. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the other part of it is, is you and I have both been around for a minute now and we've been part of things that are much bigger than we are. You know what I mean? Which comes with its own pros and cons to it. But the bottom line is between being around forever and both of us having had, you know, multiple hits or whatever under our belt, you kind of, you you no longer have that new hype that comes with the new artists and, but not quite in the legendary status. Like I brought this up in another show with somebody else before, but at the same time, um, because we've had success as producers, people might start envisioning it that way. Whereas like if someone comes up today, like for example, take Mike Servito, he's a great DJ. He's primarily known as a DJ because it wasn't like he launched onto the circuit with a bunch of hit records and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, he makes great records, you know? Um, same thing, you know, Black Madonna and people like this. Uh, well, she had, actually, what what brought her on were, were records. Some records, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I think right now people identify with her mostly as a DJ rather than a producer, uh, first and foremost. That doesn't mean that, you know, like, same thing with Zach. Zach will even, uh, Devious One, he'll tell you firsthand, he's like, I'm a DJ first, and people identify with him as a DJ more than a producer. He's still capable of making good records, and he does. Sure. But if you had to ask people, they would, first thought would be DJ. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think, you know, these days you kind of, you know, we've made mistakes over over the years as far as like what you should have done, what shouldn't have done, or probably shouldn't have done that, like, now, for someone that's starting out, it's like if you want to be a um, person that is, you know, kind of mysterious, you can't do the social media thing, you know, or or vice versa. Or like if you want to be primarily known as a DJ, then maybe don't put out 18 million records or, you know what I mean? Or if you want to be a live actor, you know, like you kind of kind of you got to pick your path and go for it, I think. Would you disagree or? I would not disagree. I would only add that I'm never good at seeing a path um, 
deliberately, I tend to just kind of follow with my gut and that's probably what's, um, made my career maybe a little bit, um, more of a zigzag, but I, I do what I feel is compelling and inspiring to me first Mm -hmm. and what makes sense out of that. But uh, having come from jobs at marketing and PR and advertising firms, the last thing I want to do is make this a corporate strategy game of trying to optimize return on investment and all that kind of crap. I, I just want to do what I feel and I want to do what's exciting to me. And if it's, if the exciting and inspiring thing is not the right idea for the business, I'm, I'm just gonna have to let the business suffer. Cause I, I, I just don't feel like, um, charting that course and trying to compensate for people's biases and, and expectations. I don't think that that ends up being rewarding in the long run. No, I mean, generally speaking, the, I mean, it's, it's no, no secret that like the best stuff usually ends up coming from like a fluke or just kind of going with the feeling or like, I didn't think anybody would ever listen to this. So yeah. Right. I mean, that yeah. Makes sense. But that being said, cause we're, we're talking a lot about like, you know, putting out records and what the right pace is, putting out too many or whatever. But part of that is obviously making the records mm-hmm. and a question that I get, I was telling you before the show, I get it all the time is people wanting no opinions about ghost producers. Mm. And I mean, I feel like almost everybody listening to the show right now should know what a ghost producer is by now. <laughs> but if, if not, if you're living under a rock, basically it just means it's a producer that makes it's Somebody else made your record for you. Kind of like a Millie Vanilli situation. Yeah. Uh, what do you feel about it? Um, well, I, there are lots of things where the extreme examples are obviously easy for everybody to say, like, oh, that's wrong. But there's, I think, very few of those and many more um, of the things that are sort of a shade between. It's it's, it's like a bell curve, right? Like, um, there's probably very few instances where an artist pays somebody to just come in and, you know look at their mix and say, yeah, this is okay. Cause then why would somebody pay them? And there's probably very few situations on the other end of the bell curve where somebody does all the work and the person who puts their name on it has, that's the extent of their relationship to it. I think there's a, a curve and, and a space in between. And I think that the space in between is, is one that I think most people would be totally okay with, which is an artist has an idea. They're able to execute that idea to a certain point and then they need somebody to help them craft the um a studio engineer yeah a studio engineer and look you know if you look at architecture most are not most every single architect needs a structural engineer to look at what they're doing Mm -hmm. and sign off on it and say this is good this is this isn't, this will work. This is, this won't, this giant, you know, wing that you have flying off of this building is dangerous, going to kill someone. So no. So from an engineering perspective, you know, I've, I've spent many, many years learning how to make something sound dope. 
on yeah. a big sound system and have everything be where I want it to be, not just have it accidentally wind up in the right place, but actually have it be there for a reason. And if somebody who is making their way in this business and has great ideas and has a lot of potential as an artist doesn't have that, I'm not going to begrudge them the opportunity to pay someone to help them figure that out or to to take a great piece of music that should come out right now make it better so that when it does come out, cause you know, there are situations where a record gets signed and, and a label is like, this is good, but we need it to be a little bit better just in this range, in this frequency range or compressed mm-hmm. a little bit differently this way and that I got no problem with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I also have no problem with somebody being coming to an, uh, an engineer and saying, Hey, I have a hook. I have the drums. I have the pattern. I need to figure out how to make this, work over a six minute an period actual producer you know? yeah i mean here's the thing like what people don't realize i feel like i've said this on the show and i'm sure it's going to come up again in the future so i'm sorry if i'm repeating myself but how the music industry has worked up until everybody started getting a computer with ableton and fruity loops and all this is there was big studios and you had to be able to get studio time like you couldn't just make a record because it was too expensive to afford the shit yeah so uh, for example, take any band from the 70s or 80s. They didn't just immediately kick ass. They had to submit a demo to a label, which was usually recorded on a cassette tape or something like that. And it was going to be really bad quality, but the label hears it and they say, okay, there's something here. And then they give them an advance, they book the studio time, and then what happens next is they work with a studio producer that actually says, listen, you do have a good hook here. This is good, but I'm going to make it work. Your favorite yeah. albums, hip hop, you know, made by Dre or whomever. It's always a producer. Same thing with rock, like Alan Parsons and all this stuff, you know. And even going back to like dance music, Larry Levon, for example, he had to have an engineer to help do his stuff. You know what I mean? Like his edits and whatnot. And because he didn't, he couldn't afford the gear first of all, and he didn't have the knowledge, but he knew the feeling and everything. I think so. one of the big issues that part of it is that what, what we're what I think creates a lot of the conflict is there has to be, there's this mythology that gets sold around a lot of things. And then when that mythology gets sold enough, then the expectation is that everything has to fit that as the standard. And the mythology has to be that a brand new, amazing talent came out of nowhere, making amazing, perfect records. Mm -hmm. And that happens once every four or five years somebody breaks through like that but for the most part there are a lot of people who have a lot of great ideas and great skills but they're not all the way there and they are learning on the job they're growing as they as they do it and i think that this also this idea that look if larry levan didn't have all of the expertise to, to make those records, that doesn't make Larry Levan any less of a genius totally. or any less of a, a brilliant contri- contribution to, to this to this music. So there's no reason to believe that, that that should be any different for anyone else. You don't have to have all of these skills from birth. Um, you, you develop them as you go, and if you need somebody to share that with you or you know if you need to use somebody else's gear or skills or expertise you do that and i i do think that this goes back to the earlier part of the conversation about the relationship between 
putting out a record and getting gigs, I think, you know, this is where we're in this really awkward place in this industry or just in the music industry overall that it's just really hard to understand the economics of all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you believe in something that you're doing and you believe that you want to get something out and you want it to be the best it can be and you believe that on the other side of doing that, that there's more of a career for you or more of an opportunity for you, then do it. Invest in something, you know, hire somebody to help you get it right. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't think that's a, there's a problem to that. And, you know, the other part is, if you're still not getting it, I'm always doing shitty analogies, but this is another one of them. Like, put it this way, the, look at it as a house. People expect somebody like me or Kevin these days, which we all, we do our own engineering and songwriting stuff, but, like, let's say for a minute that we don't. That would be like saying, okay, you want to hire somebody to build a house, then that person has to build the entire house, paint it, do whatever, and then on the inside, decorate the entire thing, like from the ground up, like literally every element you're responsible for. That's just not going to happen. Some people know how to wield a hammer, but they don't know what colors go together. You know what I mean? Or they don't know electrical or plumbing. Exactly. Or, yeah. And in music these days, everyone expects that you're supposed to know every single element of that. And it, it's just not, for, for a lot of people, it's not possible. I put my time in and I... I listen to my mix downs and I compare it to other people's and I'm like, man, they got better hooks or this, that hits harder. Or, you know what I mean? Like, but which we all do, but, uh, I know that I'm not the all, but I'm trying, but I don't think everybody has to, you know, it's, I think it's okay to have somebody mix your shit down. So it sounds better. You know, I also think it's okay to have someone do your social media for you. I didn't used <laughs> to, but now I do. You do. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I don't do that. I just, to be 100% transparent, I have done engineering for people lately and I'm, I'm doing it more and I really enjoy it. I actually really enjoy taking other people's projects and making them better. Um, so I don't have, obviously I don't have a problem with it if I'm doing it myself. Um, but from, from the social media part, like I don't, I don't have the ability to optimize the best, most viral Facebook posts to get mm -hmm. the most attention of stuff. But I do feel like, yeah, I'm kind of, I enjoy Twitter. So I just do that myself. I don't have other people do my social media for me. And maybe I should actually hire someone to make Facebook, you know, run in the most optimal way possible. That's something that I've thought about, but it's something that like, we don't have to have, like you said, all of those skills. We don't have to be a marketer, mm -hmm. a PR person, uh, you know, an audio engineer and, uh, a songwriter all at once, you know? It's just a lot to ask. Some people are, but it, I think it's okay if uh, if you're not, you know what I mean? So I guess the, the other part of it is, is um, you know, going back to social media, for the longest time, like when I first found out that like, wait, so-and-so isn't really so-and-so on Facebook or Twitter, you know, this is back when social media was first building up. Oh, okay. You know, like... Yeah. Uh, you know, even now it's like no secret that a lot of these like top tier A-list DJs don't actually run their own accounts. Um, and at first I was really shocked by that. I'm like, why would you have someone pretend to be you? And now I kind of get it because A, well, not only is it like you're busy, but B, there there has to be some sort of wall. Like these days, like I told you, I, I deactivated my Twitter account and... 
actually, to be honest, like most of what I follow on Twitter was comedians and stuff. I followed about 10 or 15 DJs tops. But by the time the algorithms go around and stuff gets retweeted and there's like a, a scandal, like somebody sampled somebody or said something really bad or whatever, I'm just like, I need to, this is kind of like, you know, bumming me out or tainting my image of the scene. And like, I need to, I need to have a wall between me and the public to an extent, you know what I mean? And, um, so I get it if, if these guys want to, do you find you're happier since well, it hasn't been long, but, uh, I mean, the thing is, I, I just, you know, I feel like cutting out a lot of the stuff that I don't, I'm, I'm unaware of, like, I feel like I can do my job better. Okay. Yeah. Whether, I mean, there's some things that I should stand up for, for example, you know, like if, if, if one of my friends said something fucking ruthless online to somebody, you know, like, and I knew about it, of course I would stand up. But with all these distractions out of the way of social media and stuff, I can be like, cool, today I'm just going to the studio or I'm going to go through tracks or, you know what I mean? Sure. And I, I didn't used to be like that before. I thought, all right, if it's going to be you online, then it should be your personality, your words. Um, That's still how I feel only because I... I like the communication. I like bantering with people. I like being able to see what other people are saying. But um, our friend Kyle Geiger made a really good point the other day. And he was like, you know, people who are really, really engrossed in the news tend to be lonely people. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah. Well, maybe I, maybe I need to disconnect from, from all that stuff a little bit more, but I, I am super, particularly since, you know, the last, whatever it is, the last year with the U S election and I'm Brexit so much more connected to the news now. I'm just obsessed. It but, just really feels like our, our, it just feels like every day there is something else that's generation defining, like sure. life changing issues. Well, I mean, that that's a thing. And that's that's maybe another one of the parts of Twitter that can be a bit dangerous. Like, there's nothing wrong with being tuned in with what's going on in the world. Obviously, we're not going to debate that. And I think Kyle's right to the extent that where if you live your whole life, um, you know, paying attention only to politics, or that's your whole life, you're probably lonely. But I could say the same thing about like sports, for example. If all you give a shit about yeah. is fucking football, then you need to get a life. There's so much more out there than football or, or sports or techno or, you know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, but uh, for me, I, I definitely try to keep up with the news. And now I'm like, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, but I've, of course I always want to know what's going on next with Trump. Like, is today the fucking day he's, he's getting impeached? And it's never going to happen. But I, I wake up every day praying. I check the phone. I'm like, what did he do since then? Yeah, you know? I, th- I think we all do. I, th- I think when that when the James Comey hearing happened, everyone was like watching it like it was the Super Bowl. I I just did other stuff because I was just like, I know. I put it on, but I knew nothing was going to come out of it. I just knew the temptation and the fantasy that this was that there was going to be some silver bullet streaking across the television and going to nail nail Trump. It just it isn't going to happen and and I think that's what we all need to kind of get familiar with is the realization that like it's going to be a long hard 4 years or more. I I honestly I think the fantasy that he gets impeached 2 years in or 1 year in I think it's it's dangerous to get sucked up into thinking that because then you really are clicking the refresh button on your yeah. browser every day waiting for it to happen. I, mean, I think two years in, as long as the Democrats get a hold of the House again and everything, that's um, 
that's a possibility. Prior to that, not so much. You don't think so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, regardless, you know, what we have to do is be more vigilant about doing things that shut down his agenda everywhere possible so that, um, so that while he is in power, he does as little damage as possible. That's the best we can do right now. It's true. And everyone who is a United States citizen or actually, you know what? Everyone who's listening, no matter what country you live in, you have to fucking vote. You have to fucking vote. I am so, I'm so wound up about this and let me get on a soapbox for a second, but this idea that you maybe vote once every four years or, oh, well, my vote really won't matter. You have to fucking vote. You have to be engaged. I don't care if you tune out the news all the time. When when your friends say, hey, this is going on, this has to happen, you got to go out and vote, you have to fucking show up. It's not like... It's not like you have to quit smoking or you have to, you know, exercise more. It's not an optional thing that's good for you or bad for you. This is a fucking obligation to all the people around you because vulnerable people have their lives ruined when things like this happen. If you look at what happened in the UK and if you look at what happened in the US and you look at what almost happened in France, Mm -hmm. there are really, really, really fucking bad people out there who absolutely want a seat at the table and they will do anything they can to get it. And the one thing that will make it easiest for them is you sitting home and pretending and telling yourself that your vote doesn't matter. It's just, you have to fucking do it. It's so important. Sorry. I had, I get really right on man. This. I'm really, I can really see that it. he's red right now. <laughs> Steam's coming out of the ears. No, but I agree. So yeah, right. I mean, I, I, and, and I think people listening will probably say the same, like, oh, yeah, I agree. So, no excuses, show up. Right on. Speaking of which, voting. Yeah. Uh, you should go on Discogs and I vote should? for, no, whoever's oh. listening. Oh, do Give five stars to Kevin's record called Drag on my label, Enemy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Buy it in the stores. Uh, I'll when I see you, I'll autograph it if you if you have it, and uh, then it's not worth anything. Oh, uh, oh no, that's not worth more. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, well, anyway, yeah, you, you I was really excited not to offer it. I uh, autograph it. Yeah, exactly. I'll take your picture with it and yeah. post it on my Instagram. I I I was really psyched that that happened. Thank you for no thank problem, you for putting man. out that record. I was really yeah. I'm sorry really it took about it. forever to put out, but uh, there's an irony in that that I think had it come out. It closer in time to other things, it might have got like it might not have been absorbed the right way, but because it kind of because of the other records I had before and and coming after it, it sort of fit in really nicely with other stuff, and I think it worked out. I think so, yeah. And I I've mean, always loved your label, and it was really like I'm I, I play all the stuff on Enemy, and I, I was really you. stoked to be included. I was yeah, really happy no to be on it. I mean, uh, I was definitely a fan of the tracks and. I did a remix and yeah, your uh, remix was really and yeah. Uh, so it turned out well. If you haven't heard it, check it out. Um, yeah, it's just a solid record all around. So it got a lot of. I, I what was nice was that um, the remixes got a lot of attention from a really diverse. So your remix got played by a bunch of people and was really like something that was popular with some DJs. And then Amodix remix got a bunch of other people and they're. It was just a really broad cross section of different people being into different tracks, and that was a compelling to me was that there was enough of a package that it reached 
a bunch of different people in different mm-hmm. ways, which is cool. And you know, that was my that was my intention. I mean, I'm really. I mean, some people might think my label's whack. I know for a fact they do. But uh, <laughs> bottom line is, I'm 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 trying to really step it up as like when it comes to every aspect from A&R to visual to, to you name it. And in, in regards to that EP and one that will come out um, just after the summer, uh, there's it's a remix. Uh, there's this new girl, uh, Gabriela Vergilov. She's going to have a record on my label. Cool. And her tracks are very more, I don't want to say down-tempo, but they're low-key, like in the one's 118 it's like an acidy thing oh, you told me about this stuff yeah yeah and uh yeah. you know she's she's singing on it and shit like that so it's a little bit different for the label but then like i turned in the one banger club mix because it's a techno label you got to have that mm-hmm. and then uh cosman trg he's doing a remix or well it's done um and that's a bit more on uh well cosman's just on this really cool weird tip right now where it's like this orchestrated noise type thing mm-hmm. and um I guess that's the same deal as with your record. I really just want to create packages for a record that can reach different outlets of people. It's it, and I, I mean I, I'm still doing it too, so I can't argue this. But like a lot of people just put like let's say four funky techno tracks or four hard techno tracks on a record, and it's like cool. Well, you're definitely gonna hit that demographic, but it doesn't spread it around. Mm-hmm. Now you take a label like Warp or something, and my label is nothing compared to Warp, but. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about Warp is it had a wide reach. You know what I mean? You would have um, so many classic albums on, on that label, but also from a variety of different sounds. You'd have things like Super Collider, which was um, Jamie Liddell and uh, Christian Vogel. That was a bit more song-based. And then you have like Aphex Twin. You know what I mean? Like So uh, I think these days to, to have a successful label doesn't mean you should just put out every genre, but try to see what it takes to bring people from other worlds into your own without um conforming too much or, or 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 you know giving giving in you know yeah i that makes a lot of sense i mean that's my theory you don't have to do that you can just do fucking purist shit all day long if you want but i there's always that that thing that um there's a balance between those two, which is, like you said, surprising people and keeping them engaged and offering them variety. But then there also is the value in having um, having kind of a a, a through a through line through everything. Maybe it's not obvious. Maybe it's not you know transparently like everything sounds the same, but some kind of continuity so that people can kind of wrap their heads around what the focus of the label is. I mean, you know, enemy has a pretty clear focus and it's techno Mm -hmm. and it, and within the spectrum of that, there's lots of variations. Um, but I think that's, I think that's one of those things that, um, it's a balancing act. You're right that doing too much of the same thing gets pretty redundant. Um, the flip side is that being too all over the place, people lose the plot. Exactly. I mean, you got to be able to find that that balance. And I think these days, you know, li- we're living in a culture where everything's really specialized. Like uh, people, you go to a coffee shop and you got coffee fanatics, you got sneakerheads, you got, um, you know, like there's so m- people give so much attention to a specific hobby or field now. The specialists, sure. yeah. and I think that's uh, it's the same in dance music too. Like people at the moment. 
I don't think people are interested in a DJ who can play all kinds of gen- well not all kinds of genres but let's say mix up techno house Detroit whatever trancey stuff like all that four on the floor things really well in like a two hour set someone like Laurent Garnier for example right yep. but I think what people want is they want to know what they're getting so they're like okay I'm going out to uh, whatever Rex Club tonight or something and, and Adam Bayer's playing they know exactly what they're going to get like because Adam's pushing that drum code vibe really heavy right now and I mean it could be anybody but like uh, you know like these kind of specific uh, dialed in mindsets I, th- I feel like that's what the crowd is is interested in right now I think that that's because the industry has become industrialized to to be redundant I think that it's it's a matter of the packaging being sold rather than the contents mm-hmm. and it's really easy to sell something if there is a consistent identity projected and yeah, exactly. no no divergence from it. But, you know, I, I look at people like Josh Wink and Laurent Garnier as DJs who who always take you on a journey and you don't you just have to subscribe to I believe in this DJ and I know what they're I know they're gonna do something interesting and I'm gonna follow them. Actually I also think Black Madonna is that like Black Madonna's Maria's DJ sets I've seen are go all over the place. Yeah. All over the place and it's fascinating and compelling. It always works and it is, it's, you know, like a, a lesson in the history of dance music every time you listen to her. And I, those are the, you know, Nina Kravitz being also another DJ that does that as well. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there are as many DJs who are breaking into that or breaking through that, that expectation as there are people who feel blocked in. At some point, you just have to... um push through it like my set at movement um did a lot of the kind of what people would expect from a dj set from me for first part of it and then the second part of it was very much like what people would expect from an la4a set mm-hmm. and you know there was electro there was disco there was house there was techno but it was all at like you know 132 bpm mm-hmm. but it it, 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 it was worked. It, in my opinion, it worked. Somebody actually, we, I, I put out on Twitter asking, hey, people ask us questions and I'll talk about them. And one, one person said something about, talk about my set at movement. Um, so let's talk about it. The question from, I think I'm saying this right, Cinna, C-I-N-N-A, Cinna Music, uh, the experience playing at movement. How do you know what's suitable for the LA moniker, LA4A moniker versus ambivalent it's a good question it's a really good question people ask me that and i as a dj that's an interesting part right like what i do in the studio as a producer and think okay well the listening to it as i make it thinking okay well this will probably end up like as an la4a track or sometimes going in saying okay i want to make an la4a track or i want to make an ambivalent thing I, i i can do that consciously but then as a dj set yeah i definitely set out very separate terrain and there is overlap. I mean, there's tracks that work in both. Um, and at some point, if I'm having fun in a set, I just throw all the rules out and I just play what I want to play. Um, and that's kind of what happened when I was at Movement. I, I, I just sort of felt like, okay, you know, 
I've played in this little sandbox here for long enough. Let me see what's over there and, and started playing in, in, in another vein. But I would say that the difference in the DJ sets is that the LA4A stuff is the LA4A DJ sets are focused on classic sounds, not necessarily classic records. It's not like I only play all old stuff, but classic sounds or things that are fundamental to me, to the roots of what influences. Exactly. Exactly. So if a record, if a new record sounds just like something that I loved from, you know, way back, it's probably going to get played, you know, and acid is a part of it, but I don't think acid is, you know, electro is a big part of it as well. Um, and disco is a big part of it, particularly Italo, Italo disco. Like that's a, that was something I played a lot of that stuff um, early on in my in my beginnings as a DJ in New York. Italo and I'll admit I played Electro Clash for a while. It I was mean, more I, I played Electro, you know, but that was where, how it got absorbed. Was Electro Clash was at the time how people it was a thing. It. I had the Fisher Spooner record and a couple of those <laughs> Tiga's sunglasses at night, like those hits. That's and a I mean, sick record, dude. Sunglasses is great. It's great. Yeah, and like, dude, the I mean, what got swept up in all of that stuff? The thing is, is like that's how I learned about Carl Finlow. Okay, in that in that period, you know what I mean? And yeah. like, there there were a ton of great records during that time i mean the, you know the felix the house cat records and the the hacker records and mm-hmm. uh, miss kitten and all of these people made and that was actually during that period was how i heard the first ellen alien records and those were fantastic records and i got really into that to that whole thing she was around before then though the Electric she was she was but I mean, that was that was she somehow had tracks that wound up on compilations that were getting passed around during that time and i hadn't heard her music beforehand mm-hmm. i'm not saying that she was heavily identified with that yeah that strange music I mean, Beat pitch just, has been around for a long time for sure and that was that was a label they were putting out everything there's a it's a rich discography Beat pitch yeah. yeah 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 for sure um but yeah no i i totally agree i mean i i i believe that you know 95 percent of every genre is bullshit but like <laughs> 5% is usually pretty good, and honestly, it's always the earliest records. Like, even when Electro House came out four or five years later, the first two or three of those records were kind of awesome. Okay, and help then, me understand what that was, because I hear that term, and I don't know actually what it's talking about. I mean, the, I guess what I gathered from it was more kind of like the old, the first Cyrus D and Eric Prudz and okay. Jesse Rose, and like, kind of... Uh, it was neither electro nor house, despite the name. But the music industry loves to put wrong titles on shit. Um, but anyway, there's some like just cool, interesting records, uh, and I, I feel like even um, what well, that Steve Buck record, the Freaks. Remember of course, that one? Yeah, of course. In my opinion, that was an electro house record. Okay, you know, shit like that was cool. And then, of course, you get. You know, it, it would always be like some fucking white dude running around like, bro, that record's dirty. I'm like that, you know, like when you're listening to an Electro House track, that's how they describe it. I'm just like, oh, my God, I never want to hear this again. Either this dude or, or the track itself, you know, is dirty but, is dirty the term f- around Electro House. That's the equivalent of people describing techno as dark. Probably. Yeah. If I ever have well, I mean, to hear if, if if I ever have to hear. The term dark techno. If I never yeah. hear the term dark techno again, I will totally. <laughs> I will sleep fine. Yeah, uh, I've heard enough of it. 
and I, I, I still will continue to hear it because I make that stuff. But yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I, and I, I guess the point is the reason I'm bringing it up that way is because it's like I'm never. I've never gone to a party and had like an Asian come up with like, bro, dude, I got some dirty shit to play. But I've seen a million white dudes from the Midwest say that. I don't know why, but <laughs> I feel like I feel like describing stuff as dirty is a particularly American thing. Well, I think it's it's a very demographical thing. Like I, I, you know, a lot of people you think it's will only say, white dudes that say it. I've, I've, well, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know. I got to be careful because then people think that it's like a racist thing or something. But like some some people like in Europe, people say more like uh, like hard wax. You could they'll say direct, or some people will say raw. Like I think different regions kind of have specific words for what they go for. But okay, and yeah, dirty acid, dirty whatever. I'm just so sick of of hearing the word dirty applied to things. I've always had because I because I started DJing as. Um, as being a record collector of funk records, the term funky is this nebulous, confusing, mismatched, terrible, terribly used word. I, please don't ever describe something as funky to me because I will you'll instantly get a, a blank face from me. I have no idea what people mean when they mean funky because when I hear the word funk, I think of... James Brown from 1972 to 1976 sure. and nothing else. Of course. I mean, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of that stuff, too. But, like, I, I still use funky for a descriptor because when I think of funk, I don't think of, okay, the music that came out. I think of the feeling that you get. Like, it's, it's, it's got the swing. It's got, like, a little bit of perk to it. It makes you want to get up. You know what I mean? Like, this is elements that are still ringing true in hip-hop, techno, drum and bass, you name it. Like, it's all over the place, but... So I see it as like funk as a feeling more than a music, uh, you know, solely as a name for music. Okay. Just as like, I mean, techno, a lot of people throw techno around, but to me, techno is a feeling more than it is like uh, a descriptor for a track. You know, like what I might consider to be a techno record, you might not consider to be all that much techno. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I that's why I'm very much in favor of having very broad definition particularly when it comes to techno um because I I what drives me nuts is people's extremely narrow definitions of this stuff. No. Um actually our buddy Dave Drunkate mm -hmm. had a really good point on social media recently, he said, "Like, you know, what happened to the party techno? Like, everything." Well, yeah, that's because so him and I have been talking about it a lot. We hang yeah. out, and there's no party techno. Yeah, um, I'm really struggling with that because I've always been a big fan of party techno, and I will continue to be that. Like, there's you can only uh, you know wear the eyeliner and the capes for so long at these <laughs> techno parties. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you want to go out and have something exciting or a little bit of brightness in life. Okay, can I talk about one thing that's like right now really it's weighing on me and again I'm going to date myself no. as an old man. All right. I'll go for it. This the, the the fact that like everybody at certain techno clubs dresses exactly how I did in 1992. I mean, like I'm talking about core druid style. I, that was me. I'm telling yeah. you the Skinny Puppy Tour in 1990, Skinny Puppy Last Rights Tour in 1992 <laughs> was where I was, and like the outfit that I wore there 
is exactly what everybody wears at clubs now. And I feel like an old fucking man saying this, but like, like it's hard for me to see all of that and be like, wow, this is a new exciting thing for me to get into because it's literally the exact outfit. Yeah. And it's cool. That's cool that people are into it. I'm psyched that, that, you know, there's, there's, you know, interest in, in that whole scene again. It's just interesting that techno is where it sort of descended. It's like uh, all of a sudden that is where it landed this this fashion sense and suddenly now techno has to be super gothy and dark to fit that bill. I I I have a theory that it started more out of utility. Like I always end up wearing someone's drink or they ash on me or like these places are fucking dirty, these clubs or like you get the sweat rings around you like for example, I bought a my first pair of white tennis shoes in probably 20 years about two weeks ago because it's summertime, right? And uh, the first day I got a mark on, I'm like, motherfucker, you know? Like, I just can't have... I would wear white all the time if I could, but I stain shit like crazy. I got ketchup. Yeah, yeah, I'm just dirty. I'm dark blue. That's what I've done. Because I, you know? I, wore, I wore all black for so many years, and it was a stereotype of the people who were associated with Minus that everybody wore all black. Mm-hmm. And then, but, but they did. They did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I had nothing else. I still, like, if you look in drawers in my, in my house, there's just nothing but black. You can't actually identify one piece of clothing from the other. But I got tired of being part of that, and I got... And it's... It's funny that all the people who made fun of that don't see it as, you know, anything strange that the no, rest of techno is all all black. But I, I just don't want to be I, I don't want to be in that forever. So I hear you. I mean, obviously, I wear a lot of black stuff, but uh, I'm trying to change it up anyway, though. I don't need to spend this show talking about what I want to wear and what colors and stuff. Uh, but one question that got brought up and it kind of has a lot to do with what we've been discussing lately is what we choose to play or like what's acceptable or not. Somebody sent this question over online. Uh, I don't know if there was a name included or not, but uh, I'm going to mention anyway. So apparently they, they say like, uh, Oh, it's from Mark. What's your thoughts on people like Patrick topping playing techno? He was originally a house DJ with releases from hot creations and do you feel a lot of DJs are buying into the techno scene? For me, I have no clue who Patrick Topping is, to be completely honest. But at the same, secondly, I don't give a shit personally. I mean, I'm not going to make boundaries on who's allowed to play techno and who's not, because if you play good stuff and it works in the scenario you're playing, I, look, I didn't. I didn't pay membership to the techno association to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you know anybody else is as free to come into it as I am. So if you play good stuff, then great. I mean, if it's if it's bad techno, sure, I got beef with that. But if it's somebody who is new to the techno club and wants to join, pff, all for it. Like I got no problem with it as long as they as long as they get it. I mean. I think there was this uh, there was this issue when you know some of the dubstep artists switched over to playing four four stuff, and it was kind of like, well, they're really good at it. They're good at making mm-hmm. it. They're good at playing it. Like no problem. Like no issue. And uh, again, I don't I don't believe that techno is a closed system. I don't believe that it's a a gated community. You you can come in and you can leave at any time, and you can do it twice in one DJ set you can 
go from house into techno and techno back out to house and back into tech. You can do whatever you want and anybody can play whatever they want. Whether I'm a fan of how they do it or what they do, that's, um, that's something I'll determine when I hear it, but it's a case by case basis. Yeah. But everybody's allowed to play techno. Yeah. I mean, I want more people. Believe me, I would love to go to every cheesy EDM festival and hear formerly cheesy EDM DJs playing dope techno records. Mm -hmm. I'm all for everybody getting as much of this in as possible. I mean, I guess I think when people kind of ask this question or want to debate it, that it's more the worry of, you know, it being a bandwagon thing. And I'm just kind of, my theory is the bandwagon has been around since the beginning of the industry and it's not going around. Like maybe today it's techno tomorrow could be drum and bass. You never know. Like it's just going to happen. And I, you know, uh, because I the dude brought up this name Patrick Topping. I haven't I don't I don't know what he sounds like, so I'm not even throwing him under the bus or I don't, I don't know anything about it. But fact of the matter is, it's like if people are good at it, like you said, cool. If they're doing it for bandwagon purposes, that sucks. But I got I got too much shit to worry about who's on the bandwagon or not. Like that's not my business, you know. If they yeah, I mean, somebody recently posted something about on Facebook. And got in. I got sucked into some comment thread on Facebook about um, underground DJs flying in private jets, and it, are they still underground? And and I guess this is related to the question only in that, like, what really, what really fundamentally matters to me is like, is the music good? Yeah. If the music's good, if some cheesy commercial DJ plays techno and the music is good, go for it. Yeah. If some super hip cool underground dj is suddenly like charging five figure dj fees and flying in private jets but they haven't sold out their musical taste and they're playing super dope stuff to the big festival crowds all good by me in I'd fact do it today if i could <laughs> and 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 in fact i think in both of those scenarios it's better right like if someone like you like if your music makes it into the sets of formerly house DJs or, you know, predominantly house DJs and it gets played by those DJs and heard by crowds that aren't really coming out to Berghain or coming out to hear your sets. And then if somebody who plays underground techno but makes a shit ton of money and flies in private jets and plays that stuff on festival crowds, that's good for you. Mm-hmm. And if it's good for you, it's good for techno. And my thing is I don't want techno to be blocked behind closed doors. I don't want it to be diluted into pop hooks and like cheesy, you know, stuff. But as long as it's good and it is what it is the music that we believe in, the further it extends and the further it can go, the better for all of us. I agree. You know, and I, you know, it's, it's been interesting having the show because a lot of times when I'm on the road and I'm playing at clubs, people come up and they're like, you know, oh, I'm listening to the show and we'll chat about it for a few minutes. It's always cool, cool. To, to see what's up. That's cool. But a lot of people, like after we we chat for a minute, and then they're like, "So, what do you what do you really think about so and so? Or what what are your thoughts on this? Like, I'm gonna say something off the mic, like I'm gonna spill the beans or whatever, and like that or like he's a total yeah, fucking prick. Yeah, stuff like that, you know. And um, I mean, or or they'll start like start trash talking labels I've been part of or friends of mine like oh yeah but you know that stuff's really garbage right and I'm like okay there's a couple <laughs> things to consider here first of all 
you realize you're talking shit about my friends or like <laughs> my livelihood or something like that. And second of all, like I'm not, I don't harbor negative feelings to people. Like there's probably, I don't know. I can count on one hand the people on this industry that I really don't have anything good to say about. And that's just cause they're not good people for whatever reasons. That's all personal stuff. But for the most part, like I, I still wouldn't wish anything bad upon them. Like, and I feel like, uh, you know, like for example, some people think that Seth Troxler is a joker and that's what's wrong with it. You know, like some of the Pierce techno guys, I'm like, I got nothing against Seth. You know, I, I was texting with him. I was trying to get him to come on the show. Like I'm a supporter of it. Like it doesn't mean I like all the records he plays or I'm big on the clubs or the parties that he does. But like, I fully support that. I think he's a funny dude, and actually, he has a lot of talent, and he he knows solid records. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to sit here and and, and he's shit been in the business people. for a long time and paid his dues. You yeah, know? like that dude was, you know, reshelving records at record time in Detroit, like long before a lot of the people who want to police his cool factor were even involved in this music. I I think, yeah, I mean. I think also people love to people want to believe that there is a more salacious backstory to everything uh, or that there's some conspiracy theory or or something. Uh, the truth is is that in this business and in most things people are people they're trying to do what they want they're trying to do the best they can and something that they believe in and and follow their their passion and and their focus and um, I don't have any beef with with that. The only I I do have. There is one particular artist that I fucking hate, and that's Oasis. <laughs> I really I really fucking hate Oasis. Yeah, but have you seen that DVD commentary, the ten minutes long thing, where they're just, uh, like cause they were talking about the music videos, and he's like given insight on the stories. Anyway, it's fucking great. Just Google the Oasis DVD commentary. Their no matter music, how much you hate the band. Oh my God, it, their lyrics. That's funny. The lyrics but, are just so bad. They're so, so bad. I'm sure you pissed off a few people on the show just now. Yeah, but, I mean, seriously, like, you know, totally write me and tell me how wrong I am about Oasis. I'm absolutely willing to hear uh, why Oasis is great. Um, actually don't because they're fucking garbage and so is jim morrison and the doors are fucking garbage whoa now all right settle down jim was an asshole but there was some intelligent shit going on with the doors there oh god this is gonna go off the rails really quickly i'm gonna, I'm gonna flip the fucking table i mean yeah minute. listen i i get like they they ripped off a lot of shit from their background and everything with blues and whatnot but like they still made some great fucking songs that's all no they didn't no, those were terrible. Okay, so here's the thing. They were not good musicians. Neither who, were the Sex Pistols. That's true. Yeah. They were not good musicians who stole other people's ideas, and then Jim Morrison was a drunk dickhead writing teenage poetry over poorly played, poorly written, half-assed blues licks. It's a fucking drill in my skull terrible band i mean you're accurate in that description i still like the music i don't know why i mean like and usually i'm not a big fan of derivatives but i'm not a massive doors fan i mean i literally haven't i I hate the fact that people are using literally i was never using the word literally until (laughs) lately everybody's talking about how much that word sucks and then i 
rolled it into my. And now you're list. literally saying literally. Now, all now the that time. I'm literally woke about being literal now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's one point that I th- I think is worth bringing up, and I don't want to go too far into it because it's just scandalous in general. But like, uh, you know, Jim Morrison was noted as being kind of a, a drunk asshole, hard to deal with, and like a lot of musicians. Uh, over the course of like, let's say our parents and our grandparents, like they, because the internet didn't exist and there wasn't Twitter and stuff like that, people don't realize that. And so they grow up with this idea that like, oh, um, maybe somebody just now on the show learned that, wait, Jim Morrison was an asshole. I, I love Jim Morrison. What the hell? But like, cause that information isn't as immediately available as it is now. Do you think that's a dangerous thing these days? Cause you know, like a lot of times you see people online, like, Oh, I didn't realize this person was homophobic or uh um a sexist or something and then they're like, "Well, I don't need to listen to their records ever again." And I mean, I agree that you should not support people that uh have negative views, but then again, I feel like, well, if we revisit a lot of the most popular albums in history, you'd be del- you'd be burning a lot of records. Same with people saying like, "Oh, drugs are bad." Well, it's like delete uh delete your MP3s, sell your records cuz <laughs> You know, artists are tricky people. I mean, you have, you're an art major. What do you think about that? I, I think that um, I think that social pressure exists and exists in the same way that it did before. People could be artists could be socially outcast for any number of reasons a hundred years ago, um, and sometimes that made it impossible for them to have their work understood or or for them to get attention for what they were doing. Sometimes their work was powerful enough that it overcame it. Sometimes all of that stuff, you know, they all of their their life and their work were ignored until after they were dead. I mean, as an artist, you take I, I think this is one of the things that um that we're not as attuned to in our generation is the choice to become an artist, whether that's a musician or, you know, uh, a visual artist or a poet or a writer or any of those things or a photographer. The, the choice to do that is incredibly renegade. It's, you're you're really not choosing the safe path. You're basically mm-hmm. guaranteeing yourself failure. A lot harder life than if you decided to cr- pursue a career at the post mm-hmm. office. You know, there's no, there are no guarantees. You're not owed anything. You're not owed an audience. You're not owed a living. No one tells you like, okay, well, if you sign up for being a techno DJ, you sign up for for playing underground dance music you're guaranteed to, you know, make this much per year and there's a pension fund for the techno alliance or or whatever. Like there, there is no security and there's no guarantee. So if you do something, if you put out a record that's totally shit and everyone hates it and no one wants to hear from you again, that's, that can have just as much consequence as you getting on social media and saying some really horrible shit yeah, totally. All that but, stuff, there there are a million and one things that can crack an egg and there are 10 times more that can crack an artist's career. 
maybe somebody can recover, maybe somebody can't. But as an artist, you decide I'm going to live and die by what I do because I believe in this. And if people hate it, it's, you know, I'm going to go down the tubes or if people decide for any other reason, they hate me. I mean, you know, crowds, crowds in general are not reflective of the best of human behavior. No. And they can be fickle and they can be hard to reach and they can be wrong a lot of times. So, you know, I don't think that being an artist is any more of a fragile position than before. In fact, I think it's actually probably to some degree a bit more stable. Now, whether it's well, changing I, all the time, that's a whole other question because they are. It yeah. is, you know. I'm not I'm not debating the fragility or anything. I'm debating more like how will it affect whatever art form it is or the content. Like for example, like let's use hip hop for example, uh like coming up like when you come up from a tough upbringing and you put that into your music, like whether it's in the lyrics or with the beats and everything like that, uh if you come up in a rough background like that, the the chances are very high that you're going to have it's going it, to you're not going to be like a perfect angel like you're going to have made some mistakes or like you've seen some shit like it's there's a good side and a bad side to it you know what i mean and if if somebody wants to hold a person accountable that art can't get made you know what's going to happen to that art like obviously that dude's not going to have a career anymore or or girl but um do you get what I'm saying here? Or I'm I do. To kick out? Yeah, no, the, the thing that I'm sort of, as I'm listening, the thing that I'm formulating is the, the notion that, I mean, making art, music, photography, film, whatever it is, the act of creating is a, it's an attempt at redemption for all of us. Mm-hmm. All of us are trying to prove that they're, that we're worthy of something by making something mm-hmm. that we share with people that gets those people to love us or pay attention to us or respect us. So it's a, it's a, it's always something that's number one, it's a gamble. Number two, it's a, an attempt at solving the kind of the, the, the dark image we have of ourselves. Right, whether that dark image is because we actually are an asshole in our in our personal or private lives, and and putting out music is a way to deal with that and process it, or maybe just a way to cover it up. It, it's all of those things. So it's really up to each person, I think, listening to decide whether supporting that person's music is a way of supporting their redemption or whether supporting that music is a way of supporting their inherent evil. Yeah. That's we're, the perspective. We're know? all caught. Co- we're all complex people. And depending on which side of someone you decide to focus on, there's always going to be something you can see. But I, I can say that if you start, if you, if you completely cut out people who have um, done bad things, you're going to get pretty isolated pretty quickly. That's what I'm, I mean, that's more or less what I'm getting at, you know? And when it comes to artists, everybody has seen this on TV a million times or in person or been that person. They're not the easiest, the the really talented ones generally end up being the people that are not the easiest to deal with for a variety of reasons. Um, I mean, maybe because, you know, you've had more going on in the in the actual art world but do you ever meet a lot of people that are just super even keeled and like super boring yet they have like incredible art? I mean, it exists, but 
I think more often than not, that's not the case. I I think there's a really dangerous um, stereotype that that goes this this image of an artist being like a chaotic, hectic. This is this is a very modern and modern with a capital M, like modernist view of the artist as this crazy um kind of prophetic wild person who is you know kind of a a grown-up child or is unable to navigate the world and if you look at what the notion of an artist was from the renaissance well yeah that's but i mean i feel (laughs) like what i read that was the case back then no it wasn't no No, absolutely not no i mean the, the the notion of what an artist was in the Renaissance, if you look at people like Michelangelo and Leonardo, um, these these were people. That, what what a, what an artist was then is what we sort of define as a scientist. Art and science overlapped in in a large degree, mm-hmm. and they may have been you know they may have had you know personality issues or or they may have been people who lived sort of out on the fringes in one way or another, but generally the pursuit of being an artist was much more like being in these days, like an app developer, you know, somebody who's trying to take the available technology and science and information that's out there and create something that dazzles and pushes people's senses further. Interesting. It was not like, Oh, I have to express this feeling inside. It was like, I have to find what's out in the world and, Mm -hmm make something concrete from the information and techniques that are at the cutting edge of available availability today. And in that way, to bring it full circle, electronic musicians in a lot of ways are a lot more like what Renaissance artists are. We are using the forward edge of technology to make things that in a sensory way have a very functional application, which is these have to function in a DJ set on a dance floor much more than they are these kind of, um, you know, uh, a sonata or like a, a symphonic, mm-hmm. you know, um, expression that only is just there to be listened to. Okay. No, I dig that. But I mean, that's also looking at the Renaissance, for example, like I feel, especially with music, because you take into account things like your roots and like uh, blues and jazz and stuff. These comes from turbulent times and generally like African American culture, which didn't have the the easiest upbringing as we all know. Uh, let's say, I mean, at this point, it's almost a hundred years ago. At this point, you know, uh, when a lot of this these things started kicking off. Oh, when you uh, yeah, when, when I'm just saying. So it's like I feel like in in the more modern times, let's say in the last hundred years, that's when the the stereotype came into play that like an artist or a musician is a person who doesn't have their shit together. They stay up late. They have a drinking problem or a drug problem, or like they have these weird nervous tics or they can be an asshole. And I feel like that's because a lot of it was kind of, um, soaked in things that have to do with like the industrial revolution, racism, mm. uh, being stuck in the ghetto, you know, cause poverty, be, like, I mean, there's poverty has been around for the, since the beginning of civilization, but, Class separation, I think, is a little bit more modern since the Industrial Revolution. It's a really and, interesting idea that that I mean, but I, I think you're absolutely right that um, most of the time, it's not that um, 
artists are people who are just born to suffer and they happen to also have a gift. It's that people generally who are people who are in sometimes really, really difficult circumstances work twice as hard to develop their skill at something in order to find their way through it, either emotionally or psychologically or financially. They develop an ability to do something because it's the only avenue open to them. And and those people often, because of the rest of their circumstances, yeah, have a lot of baggage. But it's not like the baggage is what creates the art, and it's not like people, only people with baggage are capable of making that art. But there is obviously in in African-American musical history, there is uh, an, an aspect of that where, you know, people's life experiences come through their music. And um, obviously, you know, the African-American experience has has seen the worst of what America has to offer. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's interesting sometimes also to think about how most of the things that are... Um, that really penetrate global music come from crisis. Well, also come from African American history. Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Definitely, you most know? of it. I mean, techno, house, jazz, blues, rock and roll. All of it comes from. Yeah, the reason we're sitting here today is all. That's all the roots right yeah, there. You know, of course. Um, and so, I mean, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like, there's. In the last 100 years, we can basically agree that this kind of flawed personality mindset has become a part of it. And now people are starting to stand up and say, like, this isn't cool. Like, you can't be this negative person or, or bring this person down or, like, say that, you know, only you, like, you're on top. or You know what I mean? So would you, now that we've gotten really deep on this, would you say that the future is probably going to go back more towards what you referred to as the Renaissance period, whereas it's it's more of a less of like a fuck up and more of a uh someone that's just on living on the periphery and trying to I don't believe in cultural correction. What I mean by that is I don't believe that um things snap back to an old order. I think that chaos reigns and so you know whatever the narrative we culture tells itself about anything becomes the truth whether it's the truth or not it becomes perceived that way. So stuff just has a life of its own. So it, there's a very good possibility that this modernist idea of the artist as the crazy visionary and the, and the prophetic, um, savage, you know, wild, crazy person that, that, that perception just may continue to kick on or something else may upend it. But, um, but I also think that in some ways we're no longer, both in dance music and in culture in general, we're not really elevating artists as idols anymore. We're paying attention to celebrities, and we we, we like fame more than we like art, mm-hmm. and we like um, intrigue and success more than we like creativity. And that's why you get these situations where people are famous for being famous or you get these situations where rich people are seen as the most respected and the most, you know, accomplished when they're just rich. They're worthless. Trump, for example. Perfect example. But, I mean, I think we're also at a point, 
You got you to gotta head out or anything? No, no, no. I was just seeing if somebody asked more questions. Oh, yeah, go it was for popping it. on my phone, but it wasn't. Do for it. Um, the thing is, um, I think right now it's more important than ever to the art aspect. especially. Well, let's just say music because this is a fucking podcast about music and DJs and all that stuff. It's more important than ever, and I think it really shows. You know, um, for example... I'm not a fan of Arca at all. Like I didn't mind the first album, but the second, this new one, I'm I'm not just not into his voice or whatever. And it's nothing personal. I'm not sitting here to talk shit, but he's getting a lot of coverage right now. Um, following the album, obviously, and the one thing that you can't deny is that he has a he has really highlighted an artistic aspect of it, and same thing with uh, you know TV, for example, shows like. Uh, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, like yeah, they're entertaining stories, but there's a definite arts uh, appeal to it, and I, I think like if it, it's got to have that artistic weight to it to really stand out these days. Like you might be able to get your ten cents in uh, doing something shallow and get a couple gigs or whatever, but if you put the emphasis on like a quality cover or like something with real artistic intent, that's going to shine through more than everything else, I believe. I think that's true. I, I'm not. Um, I, I kind of got lost a little bit in the middle there, but I, I do think that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I ranted. No, which is that's what these are. That's what these yeah. podcasts are for, right? But yeah. I, I think that we're. Uh, my concern is that, particularly in, I mean, it's, techno is a business, and it's also an art form. Mm-hmm. And whenever you have those two things overlap, there's going to be some some painful conflicts between the two. But it becomes a little bit difficult for me when we constantly champion people only because they're popular. Um, there are a lot of good people who are really popular, and there are a lot of popular people who are not very good. Mm-hmm. And only one of those standards matters to me. Yeah, I understand that from a business perspective... You have to you have to put your weight promoters have to put their weight behind the people who will drive the most uh, attendance at the door. But I also really respect promoters who try to do the best they can to balance that with a focus on what they think is good first, you know. Definitely. I mean, the the important thing to realize, and a lot of people refuse to accept this and they still argue with me, the circus is just as important as the art. Like, for mm. example, like, promoters, they have to book the circus because, you know, you, the only way to get to see, like, this cool artistic artist that isn't normally going to pay the bills is by way of, like, you know... Uh, a big thing that was on on one of the previous shows is like Dead Mouse is playing at in Detroit. I still don't agree with that booking, but I understand why it's done because something like that will bring in people and it helps pay the bills to for somebody that maybe has no clue who the hell LA Four is, mm-hmm. or you know what I mean, or or these other people. So, um, you have to prop each other up, and like everything in life, it's about finding the balance. Doesn't mean you have to pay attention to circus or give it the credibility or anything, but. 
Yeah. And I think, I think there's no way of escaping it. And I, I think, yeah, we can spend time complaining about it. I just, I don't even need to, though, you yeah. know, like, but I, I, I just have a lot of respect for the promoters that, um, that, that understand that there's a way to do both. There's, yeah. there's a way to survive in a business that is not just following what's cool or popular, but also focusing on what's just good and needs to be promoted. Cause if you're a promoter, you can promote and yeah. you can promote something that's good. I mean, that's the thing. And actually a lot of promoters listen to the show and it's like, they are, you know, a lot of them can, they do maybe three, four shows a year. Some do them every weekend, but like, let's say you're a guy that does three, four shows a year. And this is, I mean, let's be honest. If you're doing it at that rate, it's a hobby. You want to be able to book ambivalent or Dustin Zahn because you're really into this music and you want to do something for your friends in your town. Some people, it's a total business and it's run like a machine. But what a lot of people don't realize is how much of a business it is. Like, if you go to... It has to be a bit of both, though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. But, I mean, like, if you were to go to... We're in Berlin. There's a lot of DJ... or Well, agencies in general that are based here for fashion, to bands, you name it. If you go into one of these offices, like, Monday to Friday, it's a full-on business. There's people running around. There's, like, uh, you know, contracts didn't sign. Like, it's not just, like, a, oh, uh, you know email thing like this dj needs to have his champagne in the private jet like it's uh it's a full process you know people don't realize that they think it's a little bit more underground than it is yeah and there's you know there's a lot at stake and some people um some people make a lot of money from it if they play their cards right and some people lose a lot of money in the process and um and i think that's why it has to be both a passion somebody who who is doing it has to do it both for the love of what they're doing and f- have a sense of what works and what doesn't work. Um, it's when you go too far in either direction that things get pretty messy. Yeah, 100%. But that's life. Um, looking at other things here, did you have any other questions that came up? I'm just going to see if there's anything that anybody posted on Twitter that um, I need to pay attention to. I wrote down a note earlier when we were talking about uh, band, like people jumping on the bandwagon and like uh, other DJs picking up on other genres and stuff like that. And I brought up DNB and it kind of put it rang a bell in my head. And uh, tell me, I find it kind of interesting, and I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in the future. Like how drum and bass hasn't become popular in in, in pop music, like especially with hip hop. Because when you think about it, you got like trap and dubstep and all this stuff that uh, basically they are musical styles where you can definitely have rhyming going over the top or spitting game or whatever the kids are calling it these days. Um, Dustin, that was so cheesy. <laughs> but that's true. I don't know what the fuck they call it. So, um, but I mean, it makes sense that like that kind of music would go over really well uh, on the radio, I think, and I kind of identify with people. I mean, it's more accessible than people realize. I think grime gets a lot of attention these days um, in the UK. Yeah, in the UK. But the truth is, is that D, that drum and bass is really massive in the UK as well. It's just that it doesn't get a ton of press. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking in, in uh, United States terms. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if like Kanye or somebody's like, "All right, I'm doing this drum and bass thing now." And then after a while, instead of having like uh, auto tune and, and and trap Casio keyboard, sounds like it's a bit more. In the structure of drum and bass is all. Wouldn't surprise me at all. I think that's one of those things where 
you find the bar- the, the boundary between a music style, like a musical sound and a musical culture, right? Because like somebody can use techno in something else and it's not techno, you know, in the same way that somebody could take styles or, or ideas from drum and bass and use it in a hip hop track, but it's still culturally, it's a hip hop track. It's not part of drum and bass culture. And I think that's an important distinction is that like we have... There are genres, but those genres, to a certain degree, represent cultures. Yeah, of course. And and techno culture would not necessarily embrace or claim some pop song that uses a distorted 909 kick as being techno, right? It's somebody using techno, not techno culture making its way into these mm-hmm. um, into the pop sphere. And that that's okay. I mean, that that stuff happens. But I think that um, there was a period where drum and bass culture penetrated really wide globally. And I think that was an awesome moment. And I think it's unfortunate that it somehow got sidelined. Um, and there's a lot of artists who are still doing great stuff now. I mean, like D-Bridge is still playing great drum and bass sets and, and, you know, I got to see him like a year and a half ago and, you know, there's, there's tons of great people. I mean, I can't wait to hear this new Goldie album. I actually, I, I've been yeah. meaning to check it out, but people have said it's, it's, is it new? I thought it was a retrospective. Uh, I'm pr- well, I think that he's working on a new one oh, okay. that's coming. Oh, that's right. It comes with a book or some shit like that. I, I I've got to catch up on it, but I mean, obviously like, you know, um, Timeless was like one of those incredible records that just is sort of foundational to electronic music in general. It escaped, it took drum and bass culture and went mm-hmm. into just, you know, larger culture in general. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that there are more opportunities for drum and bass to kind of connect through. I mean, another topical thing, like I, I was, I'm, I'm a huge Marcus intellects fan. Oh both man, the that Trevino was rough, stuff dude. And, I, yeah, I landed in Detroit for the festival and turned on my phone and there were messages about it and Twitter was all about it. And it was like, it just, it really, um, it reminded me that that we're all, this is really obvious, but we're all mortal. We can all go at any minute. But as an artist, you it really makes you realize, like, I... God, I wish somebody was able to get access to Marcus Intellects' hard drive, oh, you know, yeah. and like get what was the thing that he finished two days before, you know, like mm-hmm. there are so many things that that guy was able to share and inspire people with. And it's a shame that there isn't a way for us to, to do that. And I, you know, it made, I was talking with a friend about it, like, makes me realize that like as artists we need to think about continuity plans for for what we have you know like I'm, I'm working on projects right now that like i really want to finish and i really want people to hear and 
if I don't, you know, if I, if I die before it gets to mastering, it stays on my hard drive and nobody hears it, you know, like finding some way to, to adapt to that or deal been, with it. I've been thinking actually a lot about that. I don't know, maybe I'm being too cautious, but I've almost had a theory that like, there's a lot of shit that I have on my laptop that I should have in the cloud and almost have, do you know what a dead man switch is? Are you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah. I, w- I was like, cause it's really easy to have a dead man switch these days. For those who don't know, it means like, it's like kind of like a button. You have to push the button every minute, every hour, whatever interval you hit. And if it doesn't happen, that means that it assumes that you're dead. And then the the button doesn't get pushed and it like, well, I don't know, open the cage or unleash, you know, release something. It doesn't matter what you're doing. So in my instance, it would be like if I kick the bucket and let's say I have it monthly, I have to like uh, send an email to the server or whatever. And if that email doesn't come in, all the shit gets released for free because if i if i die tonight there's a lot of stuff on my laptop that uh i wouldn't mind coming out but i want it done of course my way you know and i don't want people snooping through my laptop anywhere or whatever but um so it's just something i'm considering you know you know what but, you need to have is you need to have a will a well yeah <laughs> but you need to have a ghost producer oh yeah who will come in i mean that's Talk about redefining ghost producer. Somebody <laughs> no comes shit. in Literal. to finish your, when you die, somebody comes in to finish your unfinished projects and upload them. That's the literal definition wow. of a ghost producer, right? That is pretty Dude, much. Dude, I feel like we I feel like we just arrived on something yeah, major we here. We accomplished some big ground today. High, High five. five. Yeah. Was, yeah. But I mean, and, and not to, uh, to degrade the Marcus intellect situation. For me, it, that actually kind of hit home like i'm not one of these guys that gets super upset when celebrities or musicians die because that's part of life you know it's what happens but it did shake me up because even though i was not great friends with him at all but since he moved to berlin i would run into him somewhat regularly because he was in the neighborhood like at the bar or whatever and like we chatted a little bit but we were never super close but i of course growing up being a drum and bass head first and then into techno and stuff and he's now trevino I still to this day like get a little bit of starstruck by yeah. people, and I even though I talk to them like because for example, Eclipse, which came out on Clockworks, that was one of my favorite sort of Detroit sort of house techno records in the mm-hmm. last five or ten years, and I always like wanted to tell them that, but I never told them that at the bar because I didn't want to feel like a fucking nerd <laughs> or something, and then now I'll never get that chance, which I mm-hmm. I highly regret. But uh, so not only did that shake me up, but it's like. When you see someone and you talk to someone, like whether it's at your coffee shop or, you know, like your local pub or or the person that works at the convenience store near you and then like you realize like they're gone, like you said, it, it hits close to home. Even if you don't know that person well, like uh, you could be removed immediately tomorrow, you know? I think there's something redeeming in being aware of things like that, that to think about... Um, Someone like that, probably not knowing, I don't think that a guy like Marcus Intellects necessarily knew how wide his influence reached and how many people were like big fans. I never met him. Okay. So I never got to tell him how much I loved his music and how much I admired him. So there's probably thousands of other people out there that probably didn't get to tell him that too. And I think as an artist, it's, there is some comfort in seeing that and knowing that you put stuff out there, you reach people, and you might never hear about it. 
Well, that's a given. Like, you just have to assume that you're most likely not going to hear about it. But you don't know. You, you don't, don't know, know. But I think, in, you know, in your dark moments where you need a little comfort, you can at least tell yourself that there are probably people out there who've heard and absorbed what you do and been inspired by it. And you, you that's at least what you hope, you mm-hmm. know. But I think he's a special case, particularly, because he he really did... He was just really excellent at what he did, and he he did it across a bunch of different music formats, and was able to reach people in in a bunch of different ways. And from what I know from people who were close with him, he was a really good dude too. And yeah, you know, yeah. So that's Marcus for you. <laughs> well, also, you know, it, it's a it's a reminder that if there are people that you really respect and admire, and you believe in what they do, then tell them. Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is also something I've that kind of became apparent to me once I hit the age of like 20, 21. I just I made a not a pact with myself, but I was just like I need to start checking out DJs and bands or whomever that are kind of getting up there in age because they're not going to be around forever. Like I went and saw George Clinton the Parliament Funkadelic probably 10 years ago now at this point and I was convinced that Clinton would be dead not so soon after that, and he's still around. Um, but, like, I was just, I felt like, man, if I don't get to this show, I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance. And honestly, like, these days, I mean, for the most part, uh, it seems like a lot of the DJs that uh, we look up to, the people that listen to this show, have generally good health, but a heart attack is just a minute away sort of thing. So it's like, I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at and ranting about is, Check these people out before you don't have a chance. Like, even if you're not interested in Juan Atkins, he's not going to be around forever. And you want to be able to experience these people or at least make your make your own opinion of whether you're into them or not. You know what I mean? Like, I had a, a, a frustrating experience like that last week. Um, I had bought... I'm, I'm, I'm obsessively... I mean, I've been for 20 years now an obsessive Terry Riley fan. And, um, I don't know, a couple months ago they announced that he was coming back to town because he played here last summer with his son, Guyan. And so they were announced, they they announced that they were doing another show here this summer. And it just happened to be, you know, a week where I was going to be here in Berlin and on a day where I didn't have anything. And it was a Friday. And then of course a booking came in for that night and, Long story short, I had a crazy day and I was just totally wiped out and was jet lagged and feeling ill and like had this ticket to go see Terry Riley, who is, I think at this point, probably in his 80s. He's one of my idols. And I had this ticket and I just was like, okay, how am I going to go to the show and then go to the gig and how am I going to get it all done? And I missed the show and he is somebody that I, and one of those, it was exactly that decision like you're talking about it, like how many more times am I going to have the opportunity to see Terry Riley in my life? And knowing that he was going to do a similar, maybe not exactly the same, but a very similar show to the one that I saw last year, I was like, okay, how, I, I want to get myself psyched up about this. I want to get motivated, but getting motivated in the negative, like, okay, I've got to go do this thing that physically I'm not really up for doing and mentally I'm not up for doing. It's kind of like going to your friend's DJ night. You're like, fuck, I got to go and support, but I don't, I, I don't have it in me right now. I don't have it in anywhere. me. 
I don't have it in me, but they might be dead next year, so I should <laughs> yeah. do it. And that was the motivation for, for Terry Riley. But, oh. um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I didn't make it. And I, I'm saying now on this recording, once it goes up on the internet, so I can't take it back, I will probably regret not going to that for sure. Because there will probably be a day when Terry Riley's not around and I will have wished I'd seen him every time I could. Well, I hope you get to see him before then, so... I, I'm sure I will, because it's amazing that he's touring more now than he did even a couple of years ago. But he's, um, you know, of course, my fantasy is to see him do something with, um, you know, organs and synthesizers and tape loops and stuff. But still hearing him play piano is still like you can totally recognize his that that modal way of playing and that really like sort of improvised where he takes, he just, he, he's just, he's brilliant, he's incredible, he has changed music many times over, and just even hearing him on an acoustic piano in a large church or open space is just still worth it. It's still beautiful, it's awesome, and I wish I'd gone, and I hope I get to see him again. Right on. Um, we've actually been going at it for quite a while here. Should so we wrap it up? We should get there. Um yeah, we got it. We 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 broke some ground today. We covered a shit. lot. Yeah, we. I think we might have started our new million million dollar business idea here. Ghost producing the Dead Man Switch Ghost Producer. Yeah. Well, uh, it's coming soon to a website near you. <laughs> uh, check it out. But um, yeah, let's see. I don't know when this is coming up, so we won't worry about plugging dates. But let's assume towards the end end of the summer here. Uh, podcast remixes records look at this fall anything like that yeah um i'm shaping something for the fall i don't really want to go into it yet. go into it yet but um be- over the summer i will be putting out more records uh more ambivalent records on valance um there's a thing that's coming well, it will have come out by this new thing. I think you got the promo of um, that's coming uh, in the middle of the summer. Probably in the fall, there's going to be uh, another record by me with a remix from DJ Shiva or Noncompliant. Um, that's her production alias. Yeah, and she just had a record out on Valence well, yep. as well, right? Yep, and I love that record. I'm super, super stoked. I, I just love what she's doing. I think she's... As a DJ and as a producer, just fucking killing it. And as a person, yeah. I really adore her as a person. I mean, she's been around friends. forever, too, so it's good to see that uh, finally getting some like international comeuppance. You I think know what it's I mean? long overdue, but yeah. I also think that in some ways it's sort of perfectly, timing, be- perfectly timed because I think that she is bringing something that's missing. Um, she's also really in her zone right now in such an awesome way. Um, and she's just, she's knocking it out in sets. I mean, she did like five sets around Detroit and a bunch of them were recorded. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people came up to me in Detroit and were like, Oh my God, the best set I've heard this weekend was DJ Shiva. Like she just killed it. That's awesome. She's just really doing great. And I love her productions. They're really unique. They don't sound like anybody else's stuff. It's party techno. Mm-hmm. But it's like hardware and analog and raw and bouncy and 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 chunky and stuff. It's really really cool stuff. So, um, yeah, and um, some more stuff coming on Delft, but that stuff is sort of on hold because we had a, a few changes in the the release schedule. But um, keep an eye out. There's awesome. more coming for sure. 
Oh, and uh, an LA4A record on Hot Flush. Okay. Before the end of the year. I don't I don't actually have the exact date, but... All right. Well, anyway, if you're a fan of them, just check it out on Facebook or Twitter or whatnot. I'm mm. sure you'll find some info. Keep lift, Keep following. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll be back. So it was good good this time, and I'm sure it'll be great next time. Thanks so, for having uh, me. Yeah, have a good one, man. You too. Bye-bye.